Sunday morning. Well, I'm Pastor Ben. It's my privilege this morning to share God's word with you and to continue our sermon series called Church People. Now, as we begin our conversation today, I want to ask you a question, and maybe this question will be really easy for you, but if we had to go shopping today, and I know some of you are thinking, well, I don't like shopping, so that's off the books, but let's just say you had to, right? For a personal favor to me, I said, let's go shopping. You said, okay, whatever, right? If you had to go shopping, where would you rather go shopping? Best Buy or an antique store? Right, would you rather we go to Best Buy or an antique store? Now, this is an interesting contrast, isn't it? Because at one of these stores, you're going to see the latest and greatest of modern technology. But in the other store, you're going to see what used to be the latest and greatest in modern technology. Now, as I ask that question, I'm pretty sure you probably land in one camp or the other. Right? You would rather go to Best Buy or you'd rather go to an antique store. But they're both very interesting to go to. But for some of you, you just are drawn to seeing what is the latest and greatest, right? You love going to Best Buy and going to that section, seeing what is the next iteration of what I already have, right? It moves faster, it works better, it's clearer. Or maybe you want to see what's out there, but you don't even know it's out there yet, right? You just love walking through Best Buy. Now, for some of you, you don't like Best Buy at all. In fact, Best Buy is intimidating. Maybe it's frustrating to you because when you walk in there, it just reminds you that you have no idea how to operate any of the stuff in there. And you're thinking the whole time, this is a big waste of money because what I have works just fine, right? I don't need the next iteration of that TV or that microwave or whatever that might be. Now, if you land in that camp, you probably like the antique store, right? That's probably your preference. And you love making your way through the antique store and you love the sights, maybe the sounds and the smell, right? It just brings you back to a simpler time. It brings you back to your childhood or reminds you of your parents or maybe reminds you of your grandparents and you love walking through those things, maybe even purchasing those things and putting them in your house as a constant reminder of what used to be and all those memories that come flooding in when you see those things. Now, for the other group of people, when they are forced to walk through an antique store, they feel like they're just walking through an, an organized landfill, right? It's not for them at all. There's no value for them there. But the truth is, we all know this. The point, the point of the antique store is to do exactly what I mentioned before, right? It's to bring us back. It's to have all those memories flood in. We don't go in there and buy an antique typewriter, or we don't buy that phone where they used to do the party line calls, we don't go and buy old tools or metal toothbrushes or things like that as a way to upgrade our lives, right? We do this to have all those memories flood back because if we're trying to upgrade our lives in an antique store, well, we have some real problems, don't we? In, in fact, I know we have some problems because I went to this great philosopher. You might have heard of him before. He's from Illinois. It's a pretty big deal. A very classic philosopher who spoke into this conversation. His name is Mike Ditka. This is what Mike Ditka had to say. He said, I don't believe in living in the past. Living in the past is for cowards. If you live in the past, you die in the past. If you live in the past, you die in the past. Now, if you are a farmer in the room, you know this is true right? Because when the spring comes around, I bet you're probably not going to get your animals together and strap them on the front of a plow and just kind of guide it through the, the, the field, right? You're not going to do that. 
Or maybe if you did, it'd be fun for a little bit, but soon you would go out of business. If you're a teacher in the room, I would imagine you're not going to dust off the overhead projector, make transparencies for five hours, and then quickly lose your kid's attention, right, as you're trying to explain to them what this old contraption is, and why are you not just using a computer or PowerPoint or whatever you have, smart board, right? You know it just doesn't work anymore. It used to work, but it, it's no longer really effective in the classroom. Or think about this. What if we sent our United States military out with weapons from a museum, right? Here's, here's the weapons from the Civil War. It worked fine for them back then. I mean, right, the North won, so we'll give you the Northern weapons, and we'll just send you out, and you go fight this battle. Now, we know if we did that, they would spend so much time putting the bullet in and the gunpowder and, and doing all that stuff in their musket that they would lose even the smallest underfunded military in the world. You see, it seems to ring true that if you live in the past, you die in the past. But as much as I would like to hear from Mike Didka, Super Bowl champion of the Chicago Bears, right? Bear down, Chicago Bears. I don't want to talk about Mike Ditka really as a Vikings fan ever. I want to talk about Jesus. And I want to hear what Jesus has to say on this conversation. And this is what he says in Revelation chapter 3. He says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So we see once again, we're reminded that Jesus is the one doing the talking. And every time he starts a conversation, with these churches, because we've been covering seven different churches, real churches, in a real place in the first century, he starts off by telling him something, telling them something about himself. Now, right now, he says, I am the one who has the seven stars. Now, what are the seven stars? It's these seven churches. And what he's saying to them is, I love you, I care for you, I'm going to protect you in the palm of my hand. Now, the reason he's starting off this way is because he's about to give them an incredibly difficult piece of feedback. And if they don't understand that he loves them dearly, they're going to take it incredibly personally. Even the fact that they, they know that he loves them dearly is really, I don't know if it's going to fully soften the blow because you're going to see in a bit how harsh this feedback is. But the reason he gives them the feedback is because he loves them, he cares for them, and he wants them to go in a, in a better way. So before we get to the feedback, let's learn a little bit about this church. First of all, we see that they are in the city called Sardis. Now, this is incredibly significant because if you are a church in a city, the city that you reside into does influence and affect the way you do ministry, the way you operate, and the people within your church. Now, to understand Sardis, what you need to understand is that this, this community was incredibly rich. They were rich rich, rich. They were the one percenters, right? They were rich beyond rich. In fact, they were the first community that minted gold and silver coins, right? They were the center of commerce. At least that's what they were when Jesus was a little baby. Now, when Jesus grew up to be about a teenager, something happened to this town that would change everything. In 17 AD, a great earthquake came through Sardis and just wiped out the town, and they were in financial ruin, now, what's interesting about this town is not that they experienced these things and went through financial ruin, but what's interesting about Sardis is that they never recovered. Now, why did they never recover? How could you be so good and, and so prosperous and then never recover? 
Well, historians tell us that Sardis, their problem was that they lived in the past. Their whole goal was to get back to what they were and do things the way they used to do them so they never move forward into a better direction. And when you live in a town that has that remember-when mentality, it begins to creep into the church. In fact, this is what Jesus says to the church. He says, I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Now that obviously is an incredibly challenging critique, right? You, you have a name that looks good. People think you're good, but you are dead, right? Everything you do, the ministries you run, the services you have, they're worthless. That's what he says. That hurts a little bit, right? Can you imagine someone saying that to us? Imagine Jesus coming in and saying this to us. That would, that would hurt. But the question that came to me is, how could you have a good reputation but not do anything positive or not do anything for the kingdom? Well, the answer goes back to, you can have a good reputation but now not do anything if your reputation, which this is what we base our reputations off, on things we did in the past. Right? At some point in time, they had a great origin story. And they were committed to the mission of Jesus Christ and doing everything and anything to proclaim his truth to the nation, right? To do the loving act or proclaiming Christ's loving act. This is what they were all about. But somewhere along the way, their what, what they were doing, the ministries they were running, the way they were doing their services, became the focus. And they long forgot about the why. Why are we doing what we're doing and because they were so focused on the what and forgot about the why, this became their only thing that they were worried about, and they began to die. Because the whole point of this, this became, keep these things going. Doesn't matter if they're not working anymore. It doesn't matter if they're not effective. We're going to put all of our focus on these things. So they had a great reputation, but they actually didn't accomplish anything. And this can happen to churches really, really easy. It can happen really, really fast. In fact, take us, for example, I don't think we fall into this category, but just think about it, how easy this could happen to us. If you walk around town and ask people about New Life Lutheran, what would they say? They might say, they have the biggest craft show in the whole area, right? It's amazing. Or they might say, that building is phenomenal, right? I went to a wedding there, I went to a funeral there, it's just, it's just absolutely amazing. Or they might say, they have the best church league sports teams in the whole area. They're always bringing back that first place trophy. Or, or maybe they would say, every Christmas, I look forward to their annual Christmas concert. They bring in top tier musicians, and it's just a great time for me and my family. Now, if we ask people that question, and they came up with one of those answers, I'd feel pretty good. But the problem is, we don't want to be known for just our what. Right, what do we do? We truly want to be known as a church, and we need to be known as a church by our why. Why do we do what we do? What is the mission that drives all of our what? What is the mission that drives all of our decisions? Because if we get this confused, if we get this mixed up, and we start focusing on keeping these ministries alive and forgetting why we're doing these ministries, well, then we're going to end up like, Sardis, 
And if we become like Sardis, well, Jesus has a message for us. He says this, wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. For I've not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. See, if we fall into this trap, and it's easy to fall into this trap, if our what becomes more important than our why, then Jesus would grab us by the shoulders in a loving way and say, wake up. Right, you are wasting your time, and what you're doing isn't effective. That ministry hasn't worked in 20 years. Let it go away. Start something new. Remember why you exist. Now, when Jesus says these words, it seems so challenging. It almost seems kind of mean-spirited, but remember, Jesus loves you. He loves us, and he wants us to have the most impact in the world. He wants our lives to truly matter. And so he grabs us by the shoulder and says, wake up, there is a better way. Take account of what your life is. Take account of what you're doing. Take account of the ministries you have and point them in the direction of my mission. In fact, this is what he says. He says, remember then what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. So here's the solution, not become like this church. He says, Remember, don't forget what you've heard. Now, what are we supposed to remember? What did this church need to remember? They needed to, to remember and understand and hold on to the thing that got them started as a church, which was the Great Commission. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you know what the Great Commission is. If you're thinking, I don't know what the Great Commission is, don't worry, I'm going to fill you in. The Great Commission is one of the last conversations that Jesus has with the disciples. It is the mission of the church. And right before he goes off to heaven, he says, this is what I want you to do, right? This is the focus. This is the why. I want you to go into the whole world and baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them everything that I've taught you. Sometimes I'll say it this way. Do the loving act of proclaiming Christ's loving act, right? I try to simplify it a little bit. If, if Paul was here, the Apostle Paul, he would say it this way. I want to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. This is the why of, of the disciples. This is the why of every church that's ever existed. To do this, to baptize people, to teach people God's eternal truth. This is the hope. This is the desire. This is our drive of everything that we do. This should be the drive of everything that we do. But what's interesting about this moment in history, where Jesus gives them this mission and then ascends into heaven is that he doesn't tell them how to do it. It almost seems cruel. Here's this impossible thing. Cover the whole world, baptize everybody, and teach everybody. Easy, right? I'm not going to tell you how to do it. You just got to figure it out. You see, he mandates the mission, but he doesn't mandate how to do the mission. Now, why would he do this? Right? Why would he give them this impossible mission and not give them a very detail-oriented pattern to follow to accomplish this mission? Right, you think you would say, okay, this is what it's going to look like. This is the mission, and you're going to have a pastor. And the pastor is going to dress this very specific way, and all of them should dress exactly the same. And then when you have a church building, that building should look exactly the same. And then when you, when you have your service, these are the songs you're going to sing, and these are the songs you're definitely not going to sing. And this is the order of the service. And if you do all these things, then you will accomplish my goal but he doesn't do that. He had plenty of opportunity to do that, but he didn't do that. 
And the reason he didn't do that is because he knew if there was one strategy that he put on everyone in all places, in all times, in all locations, all cultures, that the mission would fail. You see, in order for us to move Christ's mission forward, we have to be missional, which means we need to take Christ's eternal, never-changing truth and be able to take it and move it into unique cultures and languages and places to reach that next generation and that new group of people with God's eternal truth. Well, Jesus goes on. He says this next. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So to all the people who, when they hear that statement, are thinking, you know what, but I like it the way it is. It's comfortable. We've never done it that way before. Isn't it better just to go back and do what used to work when I was a kid, right? If we just do that again, I'm sure it will work. To those people, Jesus says, if you don't wake up, I'm going to come, and I'm going to see that nothing is happening, that you are dead. In fact, when he says this, it pulls us back to a story that he told, one of those parables, one of those magnetic stories that he taught every time he, he, he got a pe- group of people. In fact, they were so magnetic that people would gather from all around to hear his stories. And he taught this story about these people and parables, the parable of the talents. Now, you've probably heard this story before. Even if you haven't grown up in church, you've probably heard this story before, and I'll simplify it for you. But really, the story is, is this. There is a man, and he owns a business, and he's going to go on a trip. I don't know if he's going on vacation or if he's just going on a business trip. doesn't really matter. And he brings in these three workers. He says, I'm going to give you guys money, okay? All three of you, you have money. We call it talents in the Bible. They're getting money. Here's your money, and I want you to use this money wisely for the benefit of the business. Now, what's the benefit of a business? Profit, right? So I'm going to take you, give you this money, and there should be more money when I return. Now, what's interesting about the story is that Jesus, in the story, says that the business owner doesn't tell them how to do it. He just gives them money and says, make more money. Then he leaves. And when he comes back, what does he find? He finds that one person didn't do anything. In fact, it says in Scripture that he buried the money in the ground, and then he sat there and waited for the master to return. In other words, during that time, he did nothing. Why he just sat comfortably and just waited until the master returned. Now to that person, the master, the boss, the business owner says, you are wicked and you are lazy. But to the other two, they found a way to maximize the resources and actually have a return on investment. In fact, one does such a good job that the, the business owner says, well done, good and faithful servant right? Good job, and he gets more responsibility, and he gets more rewards. Now, this parable sounds like it might speak into the business world, and and it could. Obviously, there's some wise principles there, but that wasn't the point of Jesus. You see, the point of Jesus in this parable is to show us what the kingdom of God is like, how the church is. You see, he gives us this mission. He doesn't really tell us how to do it, Right? He wants us to look into our unique communities, our unique time frames, and take his eternal truth and, and, and live it out in those spaces. And at some point in time, he's going to come back. And he's going to take account. And he's going to look. And for some churches in America or around the world, 
He might come back and say, well, you know what they did is they took their what, their ministries, and, and they forgot about the why of what they were trying to do, and they just did what was comfortable and what made them happy. And they just existed, and they just waited for me to come back. And to them, they will get a response, just like the parable. Right? You are wicked, and you are lazy. You wasted your time on this earth. But to the ones who always have the mission as their focus, they will get this response. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well, Jesus moves on. He says, yet, you still have a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. See, there's an interesting side note about the, the church in Sardis. Even though Jesus said the majority of them and the church body was dead, right? They had a good reputation, but they were dead. There's a few tucked into the church that weren't dead. They were alive. They were making impact. They were making the why, the mission of Christ, the driving force behind everything that they did, every conversation they had, every ministry they started. But yet what's shocking is they didn't influence the rest of the church. Now I thought to myself, why is this possible? Right? How is this possible? If these people were so passionate about Jesus and they were doing this amazing things, how come they didn't influence the rest of the people and bring life into the whole congregation? Well, the answer is people like this make other people, make church people, very uncomfortable. Because these are the people that are trying to do something new. These are the people who aren't satisfied what used to be. These are the people who are trying to push the ball further down the road. And when that happens, a lot of people, well, we don't like that. Because that's not the way we do things. That's not the way we've done things. That makes me feel uncomfortable. It makes me feel nervous. But look at what Jesus says about these people. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes. And I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To these people who make the mission the focus of everything and are willing to try anything to move that mission forward, Jesus celebrates them. And he points us to this truth that he keeps saying time after time after time to these churches that what really matters is eternity. Don't forget that what is on the line are people's souls and lives. So keep pushing forward, keep making the mission the thing that, that drives everything you do. Well, as we close out our time this morning, I want to show you something. This is actually one of my favorite things that I own. I don't know if you can see it from where you're sitting, but this is a baseball glove from the 20s. Not the 2020s, if you can't tell. The 1920s. And just by putting this thing on, you can just feel the history. You can smell the history, right? For some of you, if you're like me, when I, when I see a glove like this, I have this picture in my mind of that reel-to-reel, black-and-white footage, like crackling of old-timey baseball, right? The people are sitting in the stands, and they're all wearing suits for some reason, not shorts and tank tops like in our modern day. Right, they're all dressed up to go to the ballpark and be a part of America's national pastime. And all the players have these gloves on. 
And you get this picture of Babe Ruth fielding the ball and making the third out. And then he comes up, and the Sultan Swat knocks one over the right field fence and wins the game. That's what things like this do. Right? We have these old things that we collect that are so amazing because it brings us back to a simpler time. Maybe a time when we felt like we were in control. Or a time that at least we had all these wonderful memories that it draws us back to. But here's the thing about this glove. Even though I love this glove and I value this glove and it's fun to put on my hand from time to time, I would never use this in a baseball game. And if you watch pro sports, you're not going to see anyone out there using a, a glove like this. Because if they wore a glove like this, if I wore a glove like this, I would drop a fly ball. I would misplay the grounder. And my team, well, we would lose. Because the reality is the technology, the gloves these players use have far surpassed this glove. So even though this glove brings me back to a simpler time, it makes me feel comfortable, and it has all these wonderful memories of history tied to it, if I wore it, I would lose the game. See, the church in Sardis, they were comfortable. They had all these fond memories. But they were losing the game. Because they started valuing the stuff they were doing, and they forgot about the mission they were supposed to be fulfilling. You see, someday Jesus is going to come back, just like he said, like a thief. In other words, we're going to be surprised when it happens. And he's going to take a look at us. He's going to take a look at our churches. And what is he going to find? Is he going to find a church that says, oh, you know what? We did all these things, and we love these things. We don't know why we're doing these things, but, but they make us feel comfortable. And In fact, we're trying to do some of the stuff we used to do that we don't remember why we stopped doing it because we forgot it didn't work anymore. We want to bring all that stuff back, and we want to do all of these things but we forget about the why of why we're doing these things. It feels really comfortable and we like it, but they're not actually effective. And if we live in that space, Jesus will have a response to us. He'll say, you wicked and lazy servant. Right? You did what you had to do to feel comfortable. But I want you to do the uncomfortable See, for the people who do the things that are uncomfortable and always make the mission of Jesus Christ the main thing, they're doing new ministries and new innovations, and they're trying new things to reach the next generation and new people for Jesus Christ. And to those people, he will have a different response. He would say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray.